Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, my Lord and my Redeemer. Good morning, First Church, and a special welcome to our friends from the Eastern Farm Workers Association. Bienvenidos. I dedicate this sermon to my niece, Professor Teresa Davis whose students at the University of Virginia call Lady T. She is the definition of awesome, a child of God, the mentor of a generation. My theme today is journeys. We're celebrating Black History Month and the bicentennial of First Church, acknowledging our journey of faith. There are many shoulders upon which we stand. In the modern era of First Church, we must always honor the Reverend Dr. Paul Smith, whose vision, soul, and heart laid the foundation for this vibrant, intentionally diverse community that we have. When Dr. Paul retired, we had some challenges, y'all know, but we have been blessed to have some wonderful religious leaders including Stephen Phelps, Carrie Jackson, and Adrian Thorne. Pastor Adrian taught us how to dance and to dream, if only we would listen and learn. She has assumed a larger platform for social justice with her calling as the senior minister of the historic Riverside Church. Then, there is the remarkable minister, Connor Foley. Connor uses the pronoun they, but is forgiving of those of us who can't always get it right. There's a black saying about people whose wisdom, grace, and holiness suggest they've been here before. Connor is that. Connor is not only a precious flower, but a garden. We must surround Connor with love and protection, allowing them to grow and taking us on a journey of faith and possibilities that we may not even be able to imagine. I came to First Church in 1988 and never left. My husband, Derek Bell, came later. This church became our home. Our roots are deep. When I had cancer in 1993, also the year my mother died, Dr. Paul came to the hospital and stayed with me on my journey of healing. He and this church gave powerful and answered prayers. In 2011, the choir came to the hospital as Derek lay dying to sing to him and then sang at his memorial service at the Riverside Church. Hospital staff 
and patients would find any reason to visit Derek's floor. An unexpected sight of faith and celebration. Our magnificent choir sings every year at the Derek Bell Lecture at New York University School of Law. Derek always affectionately referred to Amy Nooner, our Minister of Music, as Little Amy. I was concerned, so I asked Amy how she felt about that. She said, Derek Bell can call me anything he wants. <laughs> she knew his heart. Derek totally embraced the fact that this tiny dynamo, yes, a young white woman, got black music especially Gospels and spirituals. I feel blessed to know the wonderful people here, watch children be born and grow up, and see how our church has become a leader in the community and in the presbytery. Time does not allow me to acknowledge all the people who have been integral to my church journey, but I would be remiss if I did not mention Dorothy Gill, who greeted everyone with love, Nate Dudley, and the Marumbas. Derek and I spent a week at Ghost Ranch with Dr. Paul and others from First Church. Also there were Nate and his future wife, Stephanie Jones. When Derek, who believed everyone should be married, got all up in Nate's business, yes, we attended their wedding right here at First Church. Derek's books, Gospel Choirs, Psalms of Survival in an Alien Land Called Home, and Ethical Ambition were inspired in part by our experiences and conversations with Dr. Paul and others in this church. These prophetic books joined and we are not saved and faces at the bottom of the well as part of his canon. Derek's uncompromising and sometimes stark writings were not always appreciated when they were first written, even by some in this church. But we all know that a prophet is often without honor in his or her own time. Some of you may be familiar with Derek Bell as a brilliant, provocative law professor and dean. But before that, he was a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund on the front lines of the battle against racism to end, segregate, to end segregation in this country. Hired by Thurgood Marshall, he handled over 300 school desegregation cases. Don't ask me how he did it and assisted the great Constance Baker Motley in integrating the universities of Georgia and Mississippi. Now about that deanship at the University of Oregon, where he was one of the few black deans of a predominantly white law school, he quit that job when the faculty refused to hire a supremely qualified Asian American professor, and oh yes, there was that extended protest at Harvard Law School where he supported the students in their battles for diversity and equality. Remember too that most of the students then were white. Law student Barack Obama, you might have heard of him, called Derek the Rosa Parks 
of legal education. That one remark has driven right-wingers crazy for years. When Derek became the first tenured African-American professor at, in history of Harvard Law School, he vowed not to be the last. When the school did not have the good sense and integrity to tenure a woman of color as a professor, he gave up his prized tenure at Harvard after 20 years and was hired by New York School of Law, where he spent his last 20 years teaching, New York University School of Law. The Marumbas. At age 26, Sam and Karen Marumba, right over there, left Uganda in 1977, when it was ruled by the murderous Idi Amin. They were welcomed as refugees to Australia, where Dr. Sam, as he is lovingly known, taught at Monash University, and after her master's degree, Karen taught high school in Australia, and they lived in Australia for 13 years. The Marumbas came to the United States in 1990, and Dr. Sam has continued his teaching at Brooklyn Law School and Karen at the famous Children's Storefront School in Harlem. Having lived on three continents, they have unique world experiences in human rights and the plights of refugees. Dr. Sam often says that they are AAA, African, Australian, and American. Let me add that more than AAA, they are five-star in every way. There simply are no finer human beings. They and their children are part of the DNA of First Church. My personal journey is long and complex. I am 76 years old, after all, and have lived a truly blessed life. Through dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, and I have persevered. I'm still somewhat reluctant to talk about my own life, but as my dear friend Lindbergh Porter says, tell the story. This is not about you anyway. I am reminded that as a teenager in my hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, the very first people of Latino, Hispanic heritage I ever met was when we were working together, picking apples and cutting grapes. I knew very little about them, except they were, we were all doing equal tasks, and that they, unlike me and my siblings, had come from far away. Also, unlike me, they were working for basic sustenance and not extra money. They worked full-time and not part-time. I had and I have the utmost respect for farm workers who literally put food on the table. As a child of a domestic worker and factory worker, I know that while all work is honorable, not all work is treated honorably by those who would exploit the people who do the work. My personal journey is informed by people of faith, hope, and dedication to making the lives of children theirs and others better than theirs. My family lived in an integrated neighborhood 
among the few black families there. We did not talk about diversity then. We referred to ethnics, and by ethnics we meant Italians, Poles, Germans, mostly Europeans, and many Jews whose families had fled Europe during World War II to escape Hitler and Mussolini. We were all equal in that we were all poor. As my teacher would say, we're not poor in spirit, we just didn't have any money. And of course, because of racism, we were not all equal in opportunities. My family integrated the county schools, where for 12 years, one or more of my siblings, where we would be one of one or two black students in our, in our classes. When I graduated, there were two black students in my class. Black Americans, African Americans, were refugees from the rural South and the brutality and terrorism of Jim Crow segregation. Even with that, and maybe because of that, the black men in my neighborhood had codes of honor and conduct. They did not swear in the presence of women and children. They encouraged young people like me to become educated. Even the men on the street, those drinking out of the brown bags, would say, get your education, girl. We don't want you out here with us. They didn't know how to pronounce it. They certainly couldn't spell it, but they knew what it was. These Mordecais, the villagers outside the gates, helped shape my life, for which I am grateful. My mother, my mother, Willie Mae Neal, is my first and ultimate role model. She worked full time and never missed a PTA meeting, hello? Even when it meant losing a few hours and maybe even a day's pay, as a domestic worker, household worker, there was no such thing as personal or paid leave. The wages were meager while the abuses were legion. My mother challenged the power structure, writing letters to senators and other public officials about making society better for all of us. It is not that she was fearless. She worked through her fears, as many of us have to do. Her journey started in rural Arkansas, where she was born in 1917. The youngest of three daughters, her formal education stopped at the eighth grade because when her older sisters went away to high school, she was the only one left to help their parents on the farm. Because of rigid segregation, the nearest high school for black students was 100 miles away in Little Rock. My grandparents had 35 acres. No, they did not get 40 acres and a mule. Some of you know the reference. They also sharecropped for white farmers who owned larger farms. My six foot tall grandfather, a gentle giant if ever there was, was the finest man I had ever met until I had the blessing of a lifetime to meet Derrick Bell. My four foot 11 grandmother matched my grandfather in spirit and courage. 
The story is told when a young white male insurance agent came to collect the weekly premiums, he fondled one of the daughters in the presence of my grandmother. Remember, this was a time when black lives did not matter. My grandmother quietly walked, walked over to the gun rack. In the country, everyone had a shotgun. She took a gun, deliberately aimed it so that just missed the young man's ear to stop his aggression. Well, he had the good sense to leave. Then my grandparents sent their daughters away because they thought surely they would be lynched. But my grandparents stayed their ground. They would rather die than take low to anyone. Several weeks passed. Then, surprisingly, another young white insurance man came by, looked at my grandmother, probably had to look down, she was only about 4'11", or maybe shorter, and said, Aunt Sophronia, as if nothing had happened. My grandmother lived to be almost 80 years old with her dignity, self-respect, yes, Connor, and self-love intact. My family did not have money, but they left a rich legacy of authenticity, courage, and purpose, the themes about which I write in Lighting the Fires of Freedom. My brilliant and beautiful mother was self-educated and believed in the power and promise of education. It almost broke her heart when I quit college, giving up a full honor scholarship to work in the civil rights movement. When I finally went back to school, it was not only for personal gratification, but also a fulfillment of a commitment to my mother's dreams and sacrifices. My mother, in her younger days, was an adventurer and a risk taker. But always, always, she truly loved everybody and treated her neighbors as well or even better than herself. A person of intense, palpable, and unshakable faith, she said to treat people like people. She believed we were all equal in God's eyes, even if our circumstances were vastly different. She accepted humans as imperfect beings, including me, worthy of God's amazing, amazing grace. On her personal northern migration from rural Arkansas, she had stops and trials along the way. But like Mary, she had faith and knew that God was always with us, Emmanuel. Now, when I go back to Erie, I have a name that people call me. It's called the babysitter. Uh, my beloved godson, Arthur Butler, and my dear friends, Joyce Stanley Johnson and Catherine Chadwick, Catherine's here, were gracious enough to travel with me to Erie on separate occasions as I tended to my brothers and officiated at the funeral of another. Mine was a blended family of nine children. Now we are three. I told Catherine, do not be surprised if someone shows up at the funeral and calls me the babysitter. And almost on cue, 
Someone did. I started babysitting for a remarkable neighborhood family when I was nine years old, just a year or two older than my charges. I kept that job until I was in high school. The family like mine were no-collar workers. When I started, the family had about six children. When I left, the number had more than doubled due to multiple births. Babysitting for them was one of the easiest and most rewarding jobs I have ever had. The children were respectful and obedient. They came home from school, did their homework, sat down for dinner on the first call, and said their prayers before going to bed. My pay was $1. When they had no money, I babysat for free, not because the parents asked me to, but my mother held me to a standard of service. For this family and others, my four degrees and subsequent career are admirable, maybe, but do not match being a committed, loving, and responsible babysitter tending to children. And really, if that were my only legacy, that would be just fine. But I have another commission, a duty to improve the lives of not just the few, but the many, to effect systemic change for an earth, Nate, as it is in heaven. This is my charge. My beloved mother made sure that my siblings and I had opportunities that she would never experience. She gave me wings. She knew that some of us would enter the gates, and when we got there, we needed to open them wide for others. So, those of us who sit in the corporate corridor, work in influential nonprofits, or in politics, wherever, we need to remember our privilege and our responsibility. Doing well is just fine, but we must also do good. We must remember that, as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and we must be willing to create good trouble, as St. John Lewis said. I believe in God and God's amazing grace. I am a witness. I believe in heaven and hell. There is evil in the world that we are obligated to combat. I have battle scars, having been arrested in protests against the Vietnam War, segregation, and police brutality. The people, especially the children, the planet, democracy, civilization, they are all counting on us. And we have no choice but to win. We have no choice but to win. We must each answer the call, continue on our journeys of faith, redemption, and good works. Please, God, guide my feet while I run this race, because I don't want to run this race in vain. Mordecai's words to Esther inspire and haunt me. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself 
that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.